The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. You can follow along with me on pages 940 in the Bibles around the chairs or on the screen behind me. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? If spoken in a human way, by no means For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So we're in Romans again. Christian did a great job with our uh, passage last week. And uh, we're really at a a point where the the book is going to turn, thankfully. There's been a lot of bad news so far in this book. And if you've been sticking around, man, um, thumbs up to you because, man, it's kind of kind of lays bad news on top of bad news on top of bad news. And but the the thing is, we're going to see today that you really don't get the good news until you get the bad. Uh, What Paul is doing is he's writing to a church in Rome. 
uh, that he had not been to, he had not planted. He hopes to visit uh, on his way to Spain in order to, he wants them to help him get to Spain so he can declare the gospel to a people who have never heard the gospel before. And uh, in this process, as he's doing that, what he's really doing in the book of Romans and the letter that he's writing to this church is he's laying out his understanding of what the gospel is. And to really understand what the importance of that, we have to understand kind of the state of the world at this point. Uh, the gospel had, uh, the Christianity had suddenly like burst onto the scene and and, it's, and the most unlikely religion, the most unlikely people had actually begun to revolutionize the world. This is huge. Christianity revolutionized the world. And it was in the middle of turning the Roman Empire and beyond upside down at this point. And it was incredibly unlikely because its founder was a guy who was just a Jewish peasant who claimed that he was God in, and a man and claimed that he was going to be killed and was going to rise again. And, the only, and he, his followers claimed that he did, but only a few people had actually seen it happen. And, and most of his followers ended up being uh, mostly peasants, uh, ended up being mostly poor. The, the earliest Christians, the, the people who converted to Christianity, uh, were, they were Jews, but then they were, they were slaves, they were the, the lowest of the society. It was the least likely crew of people, Jews who lived on the backside of the Roman Empire and the poor and the slaves of the Roman Empire that started to convert to Christianity. It was the least likely group of people that you would think, these are the kind of people who are going to turn the world upside down. That's exactly what began to happen as Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the whole entire Roman Empire. The gospel and its very nature is revolutionary. It was revolutionizing the world at this time when he's writing to the church in Rome, and it has continued to revolutionize the world. And to those who receive it, to those who hear it, to those who believe it, it revolutionizes our lives. It turns us absolutely inside out and upside down. And here's the awesome news as we gather here this morning and we look out over our city and our nation and our world and the state that it is in. And here's the great news is that the gospel can and will revolutionize our city and our neighbors and our family members' lives. It will revolutionize our country and will revolutionize the world to those who hear it and receive it and believe it. And what Paul has been doing at the beginning of Romans is he's explaining to us the message that has been turning the world upside down and has continued to turn it upside down since then as he's been describing, here's what is the problem with humanity. And we've been talking about the past few weeks that we all kind of intrinsically know that something's wrong, right? Like we have this sense, this uh, a, a, a author I love, he, he says that we as human beings, we have a sense of a memory of an echo of the garden. And what that means is that we have a sense of a memory of an echo. It's sort of like, have you ever woken up from a dream and you know it was a great dream? Or maybe it's a terrible dream, but maybe let's say a really good dream. And you wake up and you know like it was a great dream, like a kind of dream that you don't want to wake up from. But as soon as you wake up, you can't remember what it was. You're like, man, what was that? I, I was, it was so vivid and so real and so amazing and so awesome. But now I can't remember what it was. And we all as human beings have this sort of ingrained sense of a memory of an echo. It's like a memory of a dream that we can't remember the details of that, that mankind was made for something better. 
We were made for peace and wholeness. We were made for love. We were not made for this broken world that we find ourselves in. We weren't made to be the broken people we find ourselves to be. Have you, have you lived long enough that you found out that you are broken? That you don't do the things that you know that you should do? That you don't act the way that you know that you should act? That you can't all hold it together all the time? Have you lived long enough to know that? I, 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 was, <laughs> I was sitting last night at a table with, with Megan, and Megan says, you know what? Uh, she says, you have become uh, grumpy and uh, impatient. And, 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 and I didn't want to hear that, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a dad, I'm a pastor, I'm trying to grow in grace. I've been a Christian for a long time. Like, I, I don't need to hear from my wife, I'm growing more impatient and, more, and grumpier as the days and the years grow on. She's like, if you don't watch out, you're going to be a grumpy, ornery old man. And I'm like, wow. And I was just quite, she's like, what are you thinking? I was just sitting there like trying to process like this, like, I can't really dispute that that's not true. But what, I, what do I do with it? It's just, that's who I am at this point, right? Some of you have lived long enough to realize that you're not as good as you know that you should be. You're not, you're, you're broken. We are broken at our very core. And what Paul is laying out is like, we can't as human beings try to plug our fingers in the, to the dike and pretend that we're not broken. We can't bury our head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend that we're not broken. He starts off and he says, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's good news. And here's why it's good news, because the wrath of God is revealed against all of mankind. That's the state of us as human beings. Justin, in our prayer and confession, he says that we are all, by nature and by choice, sinners. Or he said, by nature and by choice, enemies of God. And that's exactly who every single one of us are. Every single one of us. You, we have this eight-month-old baby, and she is usually very sweet unless she poops, and that's terrible. But other than that, she is, she is just the sweetest, cutest baby. She's like, as somebody told me this week, she's baby Yoda cute, right? She's baby, like she's really sweet and cute. You know what she is in all of her sweetness and cuteness? By nature and one day by choice, she's a sinner. That's who she's destined to be. That's who all of us are by nature and by choice. We're by nature and by choice enemies of God and under his wrath. And Paul lays out in, the first, uh, in these first two chapters of Romans that that means everybody. He first of all says, hey, that means the Gentiles, or it means the, the, for, for our understanding as he's writing, it would be the non-religious or the irreligious. He says they are sinners against God and they stand on the wrath of God. And that's not hard for us to understand, right? Like if you've grown up around church or in church, uh, we all have some sort of understanding that, that, that those who are irreligious are disobeying and disobedient to God and that they are sinners, right? Even though that's not a, a popular term in, uh, in our current society, right? It's very uncomfortable to say sin, Right? or to say sinner, or to say that you are a sinner. It feels very uncomfortable. But no matter where, if you, even if you didn't grow up in and around church, we all know that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and there's people who do wrong things, right? No matter how like, modern you might like, portray yourself to be, and no matter how free of these 
outdated and antiquated, like Judeo-Christian ideals that you, that you think you might be free of, no matter, no matter how much, like, we know there's a right and a wrong, right? Like, like if, I were, if I were to walk up to a child and that child has a, a quarter in her hand, she's getting ready to buy, can a quarter buy a piece of candy anymore? Let's say it's a dollar. She has a dollar in her hand and she's going to buy a piece of candy. And I walk up to her in a store and I yank the dollar away and just walk out the store like, I did something wrong, right? But, but I could say, no, it's just survival of the fittest. I was stronger. She was weaker. I was Hey, that's Darwinism. I prayed on those who are weaker, the, the survival of the fittest. But inside of us, we know that's wrong. We know it's wrong for the strong to prey upon the weak. We know there's some things that are, just aren't right intrinsically inside, we know. And so no matter how free of those ideas we might think of, Paul says that whether you're religious or irreligious, even if you're ir- irreligious and you say, I don't buy into this God, I don't buy into this Christianity, I don't buy into the Bible, and this whole cold code of morality, I don't buy into that whole system, no matter how free you might think you are, he says that we know by nature what is right and what is wrong, and whenever we do our own thing, which we all do, that we are suppressing the truth, that there is a God, and suppressing the truth that he has control or reign over our lives. That every single person, even if you don't buy into Christianity at all, you don't believe that God is real or true, whenever you do your own thing and you, you are suppressing the truth and you're deciding that you are going to rule and reign your life instead of God, and it says that because of that, you are under his wrath. But Paul doesn't leave it there, right? Because we, most of you guys, hey, you're good people. I look at you, man, you, you're better people than I am. Like your wife or your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or would not sit across the table from you and say, you're becoming more impatient and grumpier and you're gonna be a grumpy, ornery old man or old woman. Like you are much nicer and better than I am, but you don't get off the hook either. Because then Paul moves on from those who are irreligious and he says, hey, those of you who are religious, the Jews, those who have received the gospel, received the law, received the word of God, God's chosen people. So the Jews were a people that God had chosen through Abraham. And he said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to build a great nation and I'm going to bless all the other nations around you. And here's the deal. I'm going to make a covenant or a, a deal, a, a, a deep, it'd be a deeper than a, a contract. I'll make a covenant with you, Abraham. And, and I will be the God for you and your family, you and your nation that I'm going to build from you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and here's the deal. If, as long as you obey me and do what I say is right and don't do what I say is wrong, if you abide by the, this covenant, then things will go great with you. And you will, you're, you will flourish as a people. And I will showcase my goodness through you to the nations all around. But if you do not keep this covenant, if you do not, then it will be bad for you. There'll be repercussions for you if you don't do that. And the Jews, they thought they were God's chosen people, and they kept on, man, man, we've got God's law. We're God's chosen people. He's given us these sacrifices in case we sin, so we are good. And so they kind of keep on going through, and then Paul comes with this. The gospel comes, really. Jesus comes. Paul comes and explains it here in Romans, and he says, no, no, you don't get off the hook. Because even though you might be God's chosen people, even though he's given you his law, his word, even though uh, he's made a covenant with you and your forefathers to be your God and you to be his people, here's the problem, that you have 
transgressed or broken the law that God has given. And so you, as a Jew, are in the same boat that the Gentile is. So what he's saying is, you who are religious are in the same boat as those who are irreligious or non-religious. And here's where that puts us as members of, the, of a church. And you, hey, you got up this morning and through cold weather and you braved whatever you had to do. If you have kids, like you like, you know, went through yelling and screaming and got them into the car and pulled them out here and walked in with a hairy look on your face. I saw it as you came inside and like, I, I barely made it and I almost beat this child on the way over here. Or maybe I did. It's kind of swinging back in the back seat. We are going to church and we will smile and be happy. We, you got here this morning. Hey, man, great big gold star for you this morning. But Paul, Paul is saying that both those who are irreligious, those that were outside last night, they were partying, they were doing whatever they want to do, they're staying home from church this morning, those heathen, those pagans, as, as what you're thinking is you know like they're sleeping in their bed as you pass by them this morning, blissfully just being able to have brunch on Sundays, you got here, man. But it says that you and I are in the same boat as they are in. Both the irreligious and the religious are both in the same boat. We're both under the wrath of God. Because if you're a Christian, or you grew up around church, or you have the name Christian, no, I don't mean literally, but you carry the... You carry the name, his name is Christian, by the way. If you, you carry the, the name Christian, you buy into that. That's, what, that's your culture, right? That's your tribe. That's what you're a part of. You have transgressed. You might be better than your neighbor. You might be better than me. But there are ways that you have transgressed God's law. His perfect law, his perfect commands. And it puts us all in the same boat. Uh, Paul, Paul says that the Jews, even though in the beginning of this passage, he says, hey, hey, the Jews are saying, hey, what about us? Isn't there some advantage being a Jew? He says, well, there is an advantage because you got God's word, but there's not an advantage because you broke God's word, just like the Gentile, the non-religious did. We are all in the same boat. He says that in verse 9. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that here, when you hear that say, the religious, the Jews, and the irreligious, the Greeks, are under sin. And then he goes, he strings along like a, a string of pearls, a, a group of quotations from the Old Testament, where he says, as it is written, none is righteous. That word righteous, that's a church term, right? But it means to be in right standing before God. None is righteous. Sort of, the, sort of a, a wording, this is an exact wording, but it's sort of a picture like, uh, you know, if you, uh, <laughs> one time uh, a few years back, our, uh, our cable went out. And, and uh, I was going to call and complain, but uh, I wasn't sure that I had paid the bill that month. <laughs> so I first checked my records to make sure I had paid the bill before I called and complained because I wanted to make sure I was in right standing with the cable company before I complained that my the picture had gone out, right? And so there's this picture that we are, every single one of us are and not in right standing before God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, 
all, every single person have turned aside, uh, turned away from God. Together, they've become worthless. That feels kind of heavy, doesn't it? Like, become worthless? Like, we believe human beings are made in the image of God and they have an inherent worth and value. But what is it saying there? It's saying that, 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 we've, been, be, that we, we've become broken and marred. It's sort of like a, a uh, my, my wife likes to paint. She's been taking up this hobby where she's doing watercolor. And, uh, um, man, I, I admire anybody who can do something artistic with their hands. Uh, when I try to do something artistic, like, I mess it up from the beginning. Like Megan's, like, she, she tries to paint a lion, and it looks like a lion. And when I try to do it, it is marred and messed up, and that's the picture here. My, my painting is, not, is, is marred, and it is not useful to anybody. And listen to this phrase. No one does good, not even one. Now, that can feel like an, like, man, that's a big statement. No one does good. Don't people do good things? I mean, you can walk through the halls here at the YMCA and you see like, hey, this room, the equipment in here was donated by these people and this stuff was, equipped, it was donated by this. And you, we hear stories of like people who like left millions of dollars to a hospital or to uh, a school or uh, gave a big donation to a, to, a, to a charity that's in great need. Like we hear like people do good things, right? I mean, you saw, probably saw it on social media. Like, and by the way, we will come to that in a second, but if you have to post the good things you do on social media and then have it for like thousands of people to see so you can get likes and stuff, is it really all that good? But we'll, we'll visit that in a minute. But you've probably seen people do good things, right? Because it is better to help somebody than not help somebody. It's better to donate to a needy, to a, a needy good cause than to not, right? But what, so what, is he, what, is, what can he be saying when he says that no one does good? That feels like a too big of a statement. And, and here's what he's going to. Listen to the, the rest of this passage, and we'll, we'll come back and, and, and think about it. He says, their throat, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. I said asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the, the picture that Paul is, is painting. He's not saying no one has ever done a good thing in their life. Like, there are good things and there are bad things, right? Like, killing somebody, bad, right? Donated to a charity, good, right? That, that, that's, I think we can all be on the same page with that. Uh, uh, Kicking someone in the shin, bad. Uh, helping an old lady cross the street is good, right? So we can agree that there's some things that are good and some things that are bad. So how can he say that no one does good, not even one? Well, what he's getting to is he's, saying, he's talking about the pervasiveness of sin or, or how deep sin goes into us. There's this theological term called total depravity. And you can write it down. If you care about it, you can Google it. If not, then you know, just forget I even said that. But, but hear, hear the truth behind this theological term, total depravity. It's the idea that Scripture tells us, that's telling us right here, not that every single person is as bad as we could be, but that every single person is marred. That it's sort of like at the, at the core of who we are, 
If there's a fountain where all our thoughts and emotions and actions flow from, at the core of that fountain, there's, there's, there's ink, there's dirt, there's mud that's leaking out. So everything I do isn't, the action isn't bad, but the motivation, the heart posture behind everything that I do. Things that I say, things that I think, things that I do for other people are motivated by something other than a, a totally altruistic idea, right? I, I remember uh, years ago, and this is a very small thing, you know, I was taught, as a southern boy, you taught, you know, you open doors for people, you're polite, you say yes ma'am, no ma'am, you know, you say you thank you, you're, you're polite, right? You do these things. And, and I remember one day I was, I was uh, at a store and I was opening the door for somebody to come through and I remember the thought came into my head. And the thought was, are you opening this door because you want to serve this person? Or are you opening this door because you want this person to think what a good person you are? And anytime I'm doing something from that, all of a sudden, it's not purely good, is it? It's a good action, but the motivation underneath it is marred and slightly messed up. And that's something that all of us deal with in all the good things that we do. I have to deal with it and prepare. Like, it's good to get up and preach a sermon, right? But I have to deal with these multitude of motivations as I'm preparing for a sermon. I'm thinking about how are they going to think I'm doing? Is this going to be something that's compelling and interesting to them? Am I going to portray this and make myself look smart? At the end of this, are people going to say, hey, you did a good job this morning? And, and I'm also then I'm fighting those thoughts. No, I don't want it to be about that. I want it to be about God. I want to serve God and serve the people. But this mixture of motivations and thoughts that are going on in my core, the core of my being, that sin, what Paul is saying is sin prevails everything that we do. It affects our, our thinking. It affects our sexuality. It affects our speech. It affects every single part of who we are so that we're not exactly who we should be, even at our best. He talks about the pervasiveness of sin here, but he also is talking about the universality of sin. That means that it, sin affects every single person, and that's the great problem of humanity, Right? The great problem of humanity is not that a Republican is in charge or a Democrat's in charge or someone's over doing something in the Middle East or uh, your, your neighbor keeps letting uh, their dog out in your yard or whatever the case would be. That's not the problem of humanity. The problem of humanity is sin. And that sin is deep inside our core of, of who we are as human beings and is deep inside the core of every single person, no matter whether they are white or black or northern or southern or uh, they speak of English or they live on the other side of the world or they are rich or they are poor, no matter whether they are a Christian or not a Christian, that's the problem that affects every single human being. It's pervasive in that it deals with every part of our being and it's universal and it deals with every single person on the earth. But then he gets in, he tells us like exactly why it is that no one does good. No one is righteous. No, not one. Back in verse 10 and 11. No one understands. And then he says what? No one seeks for God. Down in verse 18 he says, as he's been talking about all these evil ways that we live, our throat, our tongues, the thing we do with our lips, our mouth, our feet. Then he closes up in verse 18 by saying, there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
at the very core of our being, the very core of our sin. The problem isn't just the things that we do, that we, don't, that we do bad things instead of good things. The problem is that we are ungodly at our core. We do bad things or we do good things for the wrong reason because no one seeks for God. No one by nature or by choice has a fear of God in their hearts or in their soul. And that's those who are religious and those who are irreligious. Like, so we, most of you guys sitting here, you're like, man, I'm here at a church in a gym on a Sunday morning, so man, that's not who I am in that camp. But what he's saying is this applies, he's particularly writing this to those who are religious, not just those who are irreligious. He, he's, he's saying that by nature, we don't seek God. What, what, is, what is he saying? Well, he's saying that oftentimes, but not by oftentimes, by nature, until a miracle occurs, we don't come to God seeking God for who he is. We come to God seeking something from him. We don't seek God. We seek something from him. And so religion for us, apart from a miracle that happens in our soul, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or whatever kind of religion that you happen to follow, no matter what religion you, you are a part of that you would subscribe to, until a miracle happens in our soul, that religion is a way for us to get God to give us something in return. So I, and the way that we can tell this is whenever you're living life and something bad happens to you, do you say, God, how can you let this happen? I'm on the setup team at church. I'm a community group every week, even though I don't like those people. I show up on Sunday, whether it's cold or hot in the gym, whether we're meeting the gym or a school. Uh, I, I'm, I tithe. I, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. Man, I read my Bible every single day this year. How can you let this happen to me? And all of a sudden, what that should cause to, that uh, light to go off in our minds and our hearts to say, wait, wait, I'm not here for God. I'm here for what God gives me in return. See how that works? The irreligious are out, they're out ignoring God, thinking everything's gonna be okay, but we're in here thinking that we're doing good things for God, thinking that he's gonna give us something in return, like he owes us something. Like God is sort of a, a health insurance policy or a life insurance policy. I pay my premium every month so that whenever I need him, he's gonna come through for me, and when he doesn't come through for me like I think he should, then I'm gonna get angry and I want my money back. Whether we're religious or irreligious, we're all in the same boat. None of us seek God for who he is. We don't have that word, in that wording there in verse 18 is the fear of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. No one by nature, fear. we don't seek God because we don't fear God. And we don't fear God because we don't rightly understand who he is. Or actually, not just rightly understand who he is. We actually suppress the truth of who he is because if he's God, then that means I'm not. If he's king, that means I'm not. And I'd rather retain the deity over my own life rather than him being God. I'd rather retain rule over my own life rather than him being king. Hey, did you hear that in the song that we sang right before this? Take joy, my king. Like that's just not like a, a biblical Christian word that we use that we happen to throw into a song. But for, for a Christian, it is real and true that Jesus Christ is our king and there is no other. 
I don't serve myself as king or my country as king. I don't serve my spouse or my girlfriend or likes on Instagram or Facebook or followers on TikTok or whatever, Micmac, whatever the things that face, I don't know, face Twitters, whatever the things that are out there now that you guys are on. None of those things are my king. Jesus alone is king and I serve him because the, the fear of God is an, is an apprehension or an understanding of God's magnificence and what is justly due to him. It's the sort of thing where, um, where Job, it's a very complicated story in the Old Testament if you're not familiar with it, but his life goes bad. I mean, really, really bad things happen to him. And he has this prayer. I remember the first time I heard it, it was like, it sounded crazy to me. He said, though you slay me, still I will follow you. Simply because you're God and I'm not. And you can do with me whatever you desire to do with me. You can dispose of me however you like. You can bring me prosperity or you can bring me poverty. You can bring me a spouse or not. You can bring me the, the life I always dreamed of or not. I will follow you no matter what. I'm here. You are God and you are king and you are not. And that comes from an understanding and apprehension of God's magnificence. An awareness of his presence, of his works, of his ways. Scripture tells us over and over again that if you want to gain wisdom, if you want to gain understanding, this is how you get true wisdom and true understanding, the fear of the Lord. To understand and appreciate God and his magnificence and what is owed to him from us as human beings, no matter what. That's what causes us to begin to think rightly about the world and about ourselves, about God, about everything. And until that, we are groping around in darkness, pretending that we're the kings of our own castle, pretending that we're the boss of our own mountain, pretending that I and you are God whenever he alone is. And we are pretending and running around like little toddlers thinking that they're in charge. The fear of the Lord is what brings true wisdom and understanding. So think about that. So if every single human being, whether they're religious or irreligious, are all by nature and by choice rebels against God and under the wrath of God, and they, no one does good, not one, no one seeks after God, and no one has the fear of God, no one understands and appreciates the magnificence that is due to him, then that, that has incredible implications for every single one of us in this room. Because you may have been around church and around Christianity, you may carry the title Christian all your life, but, in, but until, until you come to an end of yourself and you realize that I am a Christian as a Christian, don't deserve anything more than the irreligious person over here because I have broken the law of God. I have not sought after God. I've, there's nothing good about me. I'm in the same boat as they are. And as, as Paul says in this next phrase, 
He says, so that. In verse 19, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Until you find that you are in the same boat as everyone else and you don't have any more excuses, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, you realize I am in this place, I am under the wrath of God, and I don't have an answer any longer to defend myself. You ever been in an argument with somebody and, and you realize, like, if we're going to, I could win this argument. I'm really, by the way, I'm a really good arguer. It's not something I'm proud of any longer. I used to be very proud of it. I was undefeated for our first seven years of marriage in arguments. That was a terrible thing. It almost destroyed our marriage, by the way. But I was great at it. Always have a comeback. Always have an answer. Always have an excuse. Always have a way to turn it back around on the other person. I am really good at that. But at some point, if you're in a relationship with somebody, you realize as you're arguing about the same thing for the 18th time, and it's getting more and more serious as it goes on, you realize at some point, if I could win this argument, or if I want our relationship to go anywhere, I have to shut my mouth and listen to what they're saying and accept the truth of what they're saying. And that's what has to happen for us as human beings, every human being. This wording in verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped, it's a legal term. It's the picture of there being someone who's accused in a courtroom and there has been a preponderance of evidence that has just been poured out not more than a preponderance. It has been evidence after evidence has been poured out of their who has been, uh, who is accused to suddenly does not have a response. They're just like, yeah, you got me. I'm guilty. I'll be silent before my accuser because you're right. And until you and I get in an Unless and until you and I get to that place, whether religious or irreligious, where we find ourselves in the courtroom and we hear the accusation that no one does good, no, not one, no one seeks after God, no one has the fear of God, and that includes me, and all of a sudden I don't have a response anymore. And I come to an end of myself and all that I can do is simply shut up and be quiet and accept the verdict of the court. Until I get there, there's, you will simply be going, you'll continue running around on that playground like a toddler who thinks they're in charge of their life. You will never get past that point. And eternity is at stake for you until you get there. That has implications for every single one of you in this room. If you've never gotten to that point, I pray that this morning would be the point that you come to and I call you today, repent before the Lord and accept the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. But it has implications for our friends and for our neighbors, right? 
Here's something that stood out to me about this passage this week as I was thinking about it, is that both of these groups that he's describing, the religious and the the irreligious, both of them seem absolutely content in the state that they're in. The Jews weren't saying, hey, we need something more. They thought they're okay. The Gentiles, those who were irreligious, they weren't weren't thinking something's wrong with my life. They might think something's broken, but the the thing that's broken is, man, I I just need to get more control of my life. I need to get it together. They they didn't, they weren't in, they thought they were okay. Every single human being by nature thinks that we're okay. We're under the wrath of God, but we think everything is hunky-dory. And so as you think about your family members, and you think about your neighbors, and you think about your coworkers, there are some of those that are, carry the name Christian, or they're good moral people, or they don't seem to have any problems, or their life seems to be together. They're, they don't seem to be searching for any answers, and you think, man, man, I don't have anything to offer them because their life is together. My neighbor, they're better people than I am. What am I going to say to them? The implication is that what they need to hear is the gospel, and that is both sides of the gospel, that every single person, irreligious and religious, are by none of us are good. None of us seek after God. We are all under the wrath of God, but. But. Grace and mercy is offered freely through Jesus Christ to every person who has had their mouth shut and closed in the courtroom before God. It's only when you get to that point, it's only when our friends and neighbors get to that point, whenever they can hear the next part, the, the, the good part of the good news that comes and says, Christ freely offers grace and mercy to you through his sacrifice on your behalf. He offers his Holy Spirit to to be imbued or imparted into your very soul so that you can not only have your past sins wiped clean, but that you can be changed from one day to the next day to the next day until the point where he returns and all that is wrong is, is made right. This has incredibly deep implications for every single one of us in this room and all of our friends and family and neighbors. And the implication that it has is not only are they by nature under the wrath, but they can experience the revolution that happens to the soul that receives the gospel. That comes and says, My hands are empty, my mouth is shut. I am deserving of no good thing from you, God, but I'm quiet here and whatever you want to do with me, I'm okay with that. And it's there that God can revolutionize their soul and bring them a hope and a future through Christ. You see, the thing is, we don't need to be better people. Yeah, you might need to hear that here at the beginning of the new year. Uh, some of you guys have already like trounced your resolutions, right? Some of you are like, man, I ate great for six hours and then it all kind of fell apart. 
here's what you need to hear this morning. You don't need to be a better person. Your friends and your family members don't need to be better people. They can't. They need to have, and you need to have your record cleared. And then to be, not only have your record cleared from what what you've done, but you need to be freed from the power of sin. Did Did you get that back in the beginning? He says in verse 9 and 10, he says, uh, For we are already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Hear that word, that under sin? It's the, it's the picture of being captive or being trapped under the power of a greater power that you can't get free from apart from something else. And that something else is Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, that Jesus is interceding for you in the courtroom. He offers you grace instead of your guilt. He offers his good and righteous and holy reign instead of your terrible self-rule. And he offers himself completely and freely to you and to me. And that is amazing news that should and bear us up and hold us up no matter what life brings us. And it should encourage us to go and share that news with the people who are around us.